Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Your Governor Andrew Cuomo this week called changes in CDC guidelines, easing testing standards for Americans exposed to someone with COVID-19 political propaganda, and the Democrat says he won't follow them. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. The Centers for Disease Control guidelines on who should be tested for the coronavirus now say that anyone who has had close contact within six feet of a confirmed COVID-19 infected individual for at least 15 minutes should get the test. But until Monday, the guidelines recommended testing for anyone with a recent known or suspected exposure to the virus, even if they were asymptomatic. Studies show COVID-positive people without symptoms or who are pre-symptomatic can spread the virus. The new CDC guidelines also say that not everyone who has symptoms of the disease or might have been in contact with someone who is ill needs to get tested. The changes startled and concerned health experts. Some say if followed, the new rules would lead to fewer tests being administered and perhaps more illness and death. In a tweet, former CDC director Thomas Frieden called it a sad day. Governor Cuomo condemned the new CDC rules as political propaganda. He says it's aimed at boosting President Donald Trump's re-election campaign. And he says New York won't follow the new rules. Shame on the people in the CDC. These will be indefensible actions in the light of history. Indefensible. Polls show the public does not like the president's handling of the virus. The U.S. has among the highest rate of infection of any country in the world. Cuomo says testing fewer people fosters what he says is the president's strategy of denial when it comes to the virus. The only plausible rationale is they want fewer people taking tests because, as the president has said, if we don't take tests, you won't know that people are COVID positive and the number of COVID positive people will come down. The state's health commissioner, Dr. Howard Zucker, says he's been talking to the scientists at the CDC behind the scenes. He says they confirmed the guidelines were not changed because of new scientific information. It makes absolutely no sense. And I've spoken with the scientists at the CDC and, and they say it's political. New York, which in the spring had the highest rate of transmission of the virus in the world for a time, has since seen the rate dramatically lower. The CDC on Friday also made changes to its rules regarding travel quarantines. Previously, it recommended that anyone traveling from or returning home from a country or state with a high rate of the virus should quarantine for two weeks. It now says travelers should follow quarantine rules set up by individual states and local governments instead. The governor says New York is not following the new travel rules either and recommends that businesses here also ignore it and follow the state's guidelines instead. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government, politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Well, an interesting conversation this week with the state controller, Tom DiNapoli, about all things financial and even some other things thrown in there for good measure. You always have a wonderful conversation with him. Interesting. He, of course, worried about what's happening with the state and this budget crunch. He had a really focused conversation on the federal money. The governor keeps telling you, we got to get that federal money. You won't entertain any other ways of getting money for the state until they get the federal money. And perhaps playing a little coy with you, the controller said, well, you know, I can't share any personal conversations. I don't know if there's a secret plan. We don't have a plan B. Yes, David, you're right. This is the big issue. Cuomo has quite correctly said all along, we need this money and I'm not making any other plans because otherwise the state is really broke. And we're talking about probably $30 billion over the next two years. And actually much more than that, because when you take a look at how much the MTA itself will be down, it's a good deal more than that. So Cuomo says the feds have to give us this money, and it's not only us. It's all the Midwestern states and everybody else who are having this kind of suffering. So we will get this money. In the meantime, people like me and you ask the following question. If you don't get the money, Governor, what are you going to do? Is there a plan B? Is there something that you've got that can say, all right, Everybody's going to take a 20% cut, or we're going to have to fire teachers, and we're going to have to fire firemen, and we're going to have to do all of that. This is something that the governor will not acknowledge. Now, do we know this guy well enough to know that he's got to be doing a plan B and that you already see some signs of it? Sure. Agencies and others, not-for-profits, are seeing cuts in their budgets, and that's the, what you would imagine he has to do. But he's never going to admit it because if he does, in essence, he's blinked. And if you blink in this situation, you're done. Well, and the controller didn't blink when you asked him about his audit of the economic development programs, these so-called public-private partnerships that got the governor's aides in trouble, Buffalo Billions, SUNY Poly, and other programs that gives public money to private business. Well, look, you have an independent controller for good reason. You have that controller so that they will be independent and be able to call the shots. And he's been doing it. Look, Andrew Cuomo is not a guy you want as your enemy. That's for sure. And yet we do know that there's some real vulnerabilities for the governor because the money that he has given out to private businesses and others in order to stimulate the economy has not, according to the controller, done what it should have. In other words, we gave out too much to get too little. That is what has happened. And he said it. You're a Democratic controller with a powerful Democratic governor. You've got to watch your step. But I do think he's shown an amazing amount of guts here. Frankly, I'm proud of him. Well, and it all began, right, because he lost his pre-auditing powers. You asked him, "Did you mm -hmm. have you gotten them all back? He's, well, you know, because of the pandemic and the special powers the governor has, that's suspended right now. We've gotten most of it back, but looks like we're still not completely where he was before. The governor came along and he took away a good deal of what the controller had in terms of the so-called pre-audit function. It was not good. And I called out all those powers for what they did there. And the legislature went along with it. They shouldn't have done that, but they did it. And they should be held responsible for it, too. Now, there was a hue and cry, 
editorials. People got angry, and allegedly the controller got back much of what he had, but not all of it. The governor even at one point said he was going to be having his own fiscal staff doing some of the pre-audit function and some of the audit function. That, of course, is ridiculous. That's not why you have an independent controller in your state constitution. You have one so that somebody will be keeping an eye on the store, not the people who are running the store. Meanwhile, when it comes to schools, uh, K through 12, heading back, uh, also college we can put in there as well, but primarily the K through 12 schools who have submitted plans already, some planning uh, remote learning to start and then in person, others are going right with in person. You do have the coronavirus infection rate at its lowest point ever right now. And the worry is once you get the kids back in school, it'll rise. We've already seen pushback. Teachers unions this week came out and said we need to deliver this opening till at least October. Hey, if you were a teacher, would you want to go into a school and risk getting infected and then bringing it home and infecting your parents? You bet you wouldn't. The schools are in chaos. There's no question. When you have a choice between getting infected, having your children infected or not. And I get it. I get all the sides of this argument. We can't have an open economy unless people can go to work and people can't go to work unless their kids are taken care of during the day in the educational area. So we are still in a bad spot where this is concerned and terrible decisions have to be made by parents, which is, do I send my kid to school? Do I keep the kid home? If the kid is home, who's going to take care of that child? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be, you know, my partner? Who does that work? Alan, some controversy over the newly nominated SUNY chancellor, Jim Malatras, the feeling that it's not a proper nationwide search. And this is, well, how do you put it? Perhaps more of a crony for the governor in terms of leading the university. Well, there are lots of different ways to look at this one. SUNY needs all the help it can get. And obviously, as the private colleges, so-called independent colleges, are facing these terrible times, SUNY's going to become even more important. Now, would you rather have somebody from Ohio State University coming in to be the head person, or would you rather have the governor's right-hand man who would be able to access, if he chose to do so, a good deal of the resources that are needed to keep SUNY running. I get it. You know, the theory is you should always have an academic at the head of an academic institution. On the other hand, there are times when it makes sense to bring in somebody who's hands-on and who really knows where the bodies are buried and how to access all the resources. Finally, Alan, the former head of the state assembly, the speaker, Sheldon Silver, somebody who you talked to for many, many years on your Capital Connection program, reported to jail in Otisville, New York this week, of course, sentenced to six and a half years for public corruption. Even talked with Annapoli about that under the question, is corruption endemic to politics? Well, he said it shouldn't be. Annapoli did. He said, don't go into public service if, in fact, you expect to get really rich as a result of that. You know, if you say even an offhand remark to a doctor, I'll send you people to your clinic if you send me some people from my law practice. That simple remark is what's got him into all of that trouble. In the end, it's a terrible, terrible fall from grace, that's for sure. Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Shartok.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. As colleges around the state and country see students return in person, University at Albany officials led a campus tour to demonstrate how they plan to keep the community healthy and safe from COVID-19 this fall. Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports. The impact of COVID-19 is apparent as you walk around the Washington Avenue campus. Arrows on pavement outside and floors inside mark directions of travel. Sanitizer dispensers are strategically placed in campus buildings. Each room displays a maximum occupancy sticker, numbers adjusted according to pandemic protocols. Other signage reminds students and visitors about wearing a mask and maintaining six-foot distancing. Stephen Kennard is UAlbany's emergency management coordinator. He notes there have been modifications to classroom and instructional spaces at both uptown and downtown campuses leading up to Monday's first day of classes. Classrooms have all been reduced starting with a 50% capacity reduction then overlaying the six feet distance from every seat to the next student seat near you, as well as for the faculty at the front of the classroom to have a six foot barrier from the first row of students. Part of that to help are little designated dots on the floor where the seat belongs. So if you have to shift it, that's where the seat belongs to provide the six feet distance from the next person. In our larger areas like the campus center, there's floor signs as well as walls directional to keep traffic moving. Kennard says 60% of returning students will be learning remotely, while the remainder will attend classes in person or in a hybrid mode. Kennard says UAlbany has set guidelines for behavior that students had to agree to. All students did have to sign a pledge prior to coming to campus, indicating their adherence and support to not only the mask wearing, but also the distancing and curtailing some of those large gatherings that we have seen at some other entities. Students, faculty, and staff health will be monitored via daily screenings and a smartphone health screening app. Isolation and quarantine housing is available for any student who tests positive for coronavirus. Perhaps the biggest challenge for students will be the limits on events and social life. Catherine Lonegro is a senior from Long Island. She works on campus, but will attend class remotely. I definitely feel really lucky that we get to come back at all because I know some campuses don't, like they're not letting any students come back whatsoever. I wouldn't say I'm worried about anything. I'm just like, I'm hoping that everybody's going to follow the guidelines that the university has set. If we don't follow the rules, everyone's going to go home and we don't want to go home. As of Friday, there were 4,650 residential students on campus. The normal pre-pandemic capacity is 7,800. For more on other Northeast College's fall reopening plans, visit wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. Meanwhile, the fall semester at SUNY New Paltz began Monday, August 24th. President Donald Christian walked around campus to gauge how students and staff were faring under new COVID-19 regulations. The Legislative Gazette's Allison Dunn checked in with Christian to hear about the reopening. In a plan approved by SUNY administration earlier this summer, SUNY New Paltz is offering a mix of remote, online, and in-person courses. Christian says about 75% of classes are remote. One of our challenges is that we have we have a paucity of large, uh, large capacity classrooms. Uh, we have a number of classrooms that are so small that the social distancing 
regulations we put in place um, simply w- would not work. So, um, you know, we're we're requiring no we're requiring classroom capacity that allows 36 square feet per person in a classroom. We've put uh, crosses on seats that are not to be occupied. Uh, one of the questions that came up during our campus tour yesterday with the chancellor is, uh, somebody said, but this would be a lot neater if you moved these chairs out of here rather than having the cluttery classroom with the chairs with uh, tape X's on them. And somebody, I forget who it was, weighed in that, yeah, if you remove all the all the non-occupied seats, then people are going to move seats around, whereas if you leave those, those unoccupied chairs in the classroom, it sort of forces the distance. And so those are some of the considerations that we put in place there. Students were required to quarantine before the start of classes. Sodexo, our food service provider, has been pretty remarkable in this. They have come up with their... their uh, grab-and-go food containers that are recyclable. Um, so a student comes in, grabs one of these grab-and-go containers, walks through the food service line, gets their food um, to take out. And Sodexo has set up a large tent outdoors that uh, a lot of students are uh, eating their meals in. It'll certainly work for hopefully the first month of the semester. Once we get into later October, that will be a little chilly, I think. But but it's a good way for us to get started here in the uh, in providing food for our for our students. We have, uh, as I think you're aware, we have testing capability on campus. Working with a commercial firm that um, has testing availability as we need it, and we have um, also testing capability in our student health center for students who become symptomatic. Okay. Are you requiring testing of any students that w- without cause, just as a preventative measure or knowledge measure? One of the things that we're, we're working on, and, and this kind of came late in the guide, the guidance that we're, we're receiving, uh, we originally had put in place a, a plan that's referred to as event testing, which is was one of the one of the approved uh, approaches to testing, where if you if you have a, a a student or an employee becomes becomes symptomatic, they're tested, and you immediately undertake tra- tra- tracing so that people who they have come in contact with can be quarantined or, or isolated. As the coronavirus has spread in in other states since we developed and submitted our campus plans. And as we've seen these early outbreaks on college campuses, SUNY is um, encouraging us, uh, mandating campuses to develop uh, surveillance testing. And we're, this came, only last week was that expectation laid out. And so we're scrambling now, putting in place uh, a, a surveillance testing program. It would probably mean uh, continuing to test probably every two weeks, uh, several hundred students, so we can get uh, an, uh, kind of a baseline and understand whether there are any trends in uh, upswing in the in the virus. SUNY Upstate Medical is also finalizing, and we don't know for sure when this will be done, a protocol for testing sewage coming out of a residence hall to detect um, the presence of the virus in, in human waste. And that would also be a way that we could 
trace any any tendency for the any upswing in in the virus and then go on to a more specific testing if you you know if you find the virus in sewage coming out of a particular residence hall then you can go in and test the residents of that of that hall new suny chancellor jim malatris toured the suny new pulse campus sunday with christian and ulster county executive pat ryan the rest of this interview is at wamc.org for the legislative gazette i'm allison dunn You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Even as they scrambled to establish curbside takeout and outdoor dining options, restaurants were turned upside down by the pandemic. Now lawmakers are considering ways to help out the food and beverage industry as the colder weather approaches. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard with more. COVID-19 restrictions mean businesses have needed to get creative to keep customers. From moving to more takeout-friendly menus, investing in outdoor dining, to bottling their own hot sauces, like Patrick Noonan, who owns El Loco Mexican Cafe on Madison Avenue in Albany. You know, we've stuck it out, and we've made it work, and we've flown by the seat of our pants. We had to do what we had to do, but, but now what? Noonan also owns a Ben & Jerry's franchise next door and a sandwich shop across the street that closed for good. He joined other restaurateurs on a conference call with Capital Region Congressman Paul Tonko. To me, this is outright rescue. Tonko, a Democrat from the 20th District, is a sponsor of H.R. 7197, or the Restaurants Act of 2020. Tonko says the bill would provide funding to bars and restaurants with a focus on small businesses. H.R. 7197, as it creates this account, will hopefully get to those most in need. The $120 billion is focused just on the industry, on the restaurant industry, on any of those that serve food and drink, uh, any sort of those facilities that would qualify. With loan programs like IDLE and PPP were made available in the spring to help keep workers employed and assist with day-to-day expenses, that funding is running out. Melissa Fleischut is president and CEO of the New York State Restaurant Association. She says most restaurants are running at 40 to 50 percent of their usual employment levels. We had over 600 responses to our most recent survey and found that 90 percent of the operators that participated in our survey do not expect that their restaurants are going to be profitable in the next six months. The far-reaching effects of the pandemic trickle back down to the restaurant industry. As companies, for example, restrict travel, that means businesses are not taking their clients out to dinner. That's had an effect on Anissa Wahid, who operates Terra Kitchen in Troy and Schenectady. And for someone like us, we've always been a destination restaurant. Uh, so what we are seeing a huge drop-off with customers is not necessarily our locals. Uh, it's more the people that would travel. With some practice running a business in a new normal over the last few months, Wahid is still planning to open a third restaurant in Gilderland. 
For David Zuka, who operates Saratoga Springs Crepery Ravenous, the future is uncertain without the usual summer bump in business. As we go into the lean months, without the cash cushion being built from having SPAC operational, the track with fans, the ballet, the orchestra, and everything that Saratoga stands for and has to offer, it's, it's really taking the oxygen out of my business. You know, cash to a restaurant is oxygen, and I'm about ready to suffocate. While the focus of Tuesday's call was the Restaurants Act, the restaurateurs on the call also needed something else besides cash, eliminating red tape. Heidi Knobloch, who owns Plum Oyster Bar in Troy, also works for Pioneer Bank, which processes federal Paycheck Protection Program loans. Knobloch asked Tonko to look at two bills in the Senate, one that would allow small businesses to deduct payroll and other expenses paid for with federal grants from their tax bill, another to simplify the paperwork when applying for PPP loan forgiveness. Thanks, sir. You know, we're looking at this forgiveness process, and every day I'm processing um, really an enormous amount of paperwork for some loans as low as $1,000. So that right. would really be very, very helpful. And another thing business owners want in a time of swiftly changing regulations, better communication from the state and federal government. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2035. Or just listen to podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at the same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.